During the whole making of X-Men and the casting of X-Men, I was there in the production office. Remember, you don't need to scream for help when Banshees are around Was it supposed to be Jean or was it supposed to be Madeline? I drew that image and a deliberate hint at things to come. What makes Marvel Legends so special? Just the partnership with Marvel, you know, continuing to work with Jesse Falcon. This is your special guest host, Mr. Sinister. <laughs> you would never put Storm in a ponytail. That would be well, weird. You could, but that would be weird. <laughs> but giving it to Jean kind of made her the girl next door that everybody could talk to. When I met Stan, he was very gracious and 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 very kind. This is the Power of X Men podcast. I am your host, Dayspring. Hope you survive the experience. Guys, we have such a great episode for you today with a very special guest. But before we introduce him, I am just so happy and honored to introduce our guest co-host because this is Krakoa and the dead always come back. Welcome for the first time on Power of X-Men, the adjectiveless Flickman. Yeah, man. I mean, there was like this tragic accident while I was dusting my omnibus collection and it took forever for me to get in the resurrection protocols. I mean, I, I assume you wound up bribing one of the five with your white Phoenix Marvel legend to, to, to get me resurrected. So I really appreciate that. And I'm just so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry. Is this a Phoenix rising from the ashes or another diva having a reinvention tour? Oh, oh, I'm definitely a diva on a, on a reinvention tour, honey. I mean, the Flinkman before you is not the Flinkman from before. And, you know, plus, much like Matthew Rosenberg Dazzler, this is a wig and I am hiding my mom hair. <laughs> I am. I'm just so happy to see you, Flink, and having you on the podcast today as a guest co-host, because today we have the honor of interviewing one of our favorite writers. They have penned countless comics and novels, including X-Men Blind Science, X-Men Curse of the Mutants, Smoke and Bone, and he had a legendary run on X-Men Legacy. He has joined the Hickman era with a new book, which launched yesterday called Way of X. We have Cy Spurrier in the house. Hey guys, how we doing? Oh man, we are doing so good. I know we are both just like so excited to, to be here talking with you today, obviously. We're huge fans of your, your prior work in the X office and so happy to have you back with, with Bob Quinn on, on Way of X. I, it's just stoked, so stoked. Well, thank you. And I'm delighted you touched on the whole, uh, what we call over here, the syrup and fig, which is the wig situation, because behind <gasps> on, right? this is uh, this is lockdown side. This is why we're keeping the hat on for the jury. Holy frack. That's why <laughs> you, you were able to do the Legion hair. Oh, yeah. No, I wish I could say that that's the only reason I've been growing it out. But no, it's because I haven't left my house in about a year and a half. So <laughs> oh, neither have I. Man, it's, it's been really rough for you guys over there, though. It's yeah. kind of up and down, yeah. And I, I have a, a two-year-old kid who has not been making things any simpler either. But um, we're fine. We're doing okay. We're uh, we're keeping positive. Uh, anyone who is dealing with children throughout all of this is literally a hero in my God eyes. God bless them, really. And you were mentioning he was sick last week, was he? Yeah, well, he's sick all the time. I mean, <laughs> kids. If your child goes anywhere near another child, it's like a science experiment to Petri dish. <laughs> the things that come out of his nostrils, honestly, you don't want to think about it. So, um, no. 
yeah, it's uh, it's endless fun, but um, we're, we're doing it again. We're actually pregnant a second time now, so uh, oh. we're, we're gluttons for punishment. <laughs> Congratulations! Congrats. That's amazing. Very much. Oh my God, that's wonderful news. Make more mutants. That's what I was going to say. You're following the Krakoan rules. It'd be if there was a little orange pod somewhere that we can just slop them out. Down a little easier. Oh, man. Well, Sai, when it was announced you were returning, Flink and I went nuts. First of all, we that Reign of X promo that came out, we were going crazy speculating. And the first thing I talked about when Flink and I sat down, and he had such great theories, but I cut him off. I'm like, Nightcrawler's starting a religion. Nightcrawler's starting a religion. Yep. And it looks like after issue one, that is the trajectory we're going with. And... We'll chat about Way of X in great detail, but I think, you know, we want to get to know you a little bit more and sort of dive into your history with Marvel's Merry Mutants and your first memory of the X-Men. What was your first memory of the X-Men? Oh, heavens. (laughs) It's funny. I mean, I came to comics relatively late, right? So I was probably, I don't know, 14 or 15 before I I owned a comic that wasn't like a, a kid's comic. I have, a very, I have a very clear memory of sitting in art class at school and another kid starting to draw a face with a mask. And I was sitting there going, nah, that's not what Batman looks like. You've got the ears all wrong. They're in the wrong place. And he goes, no, it's this other kid called Wolverine. And, and that was like probably the first time I had actually encountered uh, an X-Men character. And then within maybe a year, my room was plastered in you, you know they used to do those poster books oh yeah all the, like the the Jim Lee Liefeld stuff and it was like <laughs> X Factor and X4 characters that I had no idea who they were <laughs> but all over my walls um and then bit by bit kind of caught up with the 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 culturals you know we this is very comics experience we're all probably like this we sort of start to imbibe the the wraparound cultural stuff before we actually get into the nitty-gritty of the reading experience and, and i guess i didn't come to that until i don't know 18 19 i have very clear memories of the executioner's song so i you can probably tell me when that was better than i can actually remember it but that that was probably my first sort of x-men delve um and then yeah it sort of spun on from there was your curiosity of if your contemporary was illustrating Batman or Wolverine stemming from an innate drive in you to be a writer or, or, or having that artistic eye, or were you just genuinely curious about I mean, that? all of the above? Like there was, a, <laughs> there was a time when I genuinely thought I was a decent enough artist that I could one day be a comics artist. And, mm-hmm. and like it, it gradually became clear to me because I've always wanted to be a writer that I could spend all day every day practicing as an artist and maybe someday be a mediocre level artist or, <laughs> I mean or spend all day every day practicing at being a writer and maybe someday be a halfway decent writer but but it was not ever an option that I could do both of those things because I would have to really work at my craft so um yeah, endlessly, disgustingly jealous of anybody who can do both. <laughs> Same. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm with Flink there. I can't draw anything, and I'm so nothing. jealous of other, nothing. It's pathetic. I can't even do stick figures. 
But you know what? It's uh, that's enough. Sometimes <laughs> this is a terrible thing to admit. Uh, over time, I have become quite familiar with working with extremely talented artists who don't speak a lick of English, and that's fine. Except that if you're me and your your scripting style is extremely verbose and it's always adjectives and I'm trying to convey an awful lot of information, that can be a problem. So. <laughs> I went and treated myself to a little graphics tablet. So quite often now my scripts are full of these horrible, horrible little stick figure drawings because it's easier than explaining to somebody who isn't going to understand what I mean by the shot that I have in my mind. Um, nobody has been too grumpy about that yet, but, <laughs> but it's coming. <laughs> I mean, people have made whole careers out of comic books with stick figures. So who knows? Maybe, maybe you're, you're onto something there. <laughs> Uh, so you 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 mentioned that you came to the X books, I guess, kind of in kind of in the early '90s is when the Executioner song was going on, and there was actually a UK-based X-Men team at that time. Um, there hasn't been consistently since. Thankfully, we have it again. But you know, there was actually UK representation at that point. And but beyond that, what was it? What was it like being a a Marvel reader in the UK during the '90s? Kind of lonely, I guess. And, and I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I was a Marvel head out and out. Like my my trajectory through comics was um, being aware of the big American stuff, um, but very focused on the sort of the UK side, which like you, you've heard of 2000 AD, the whole kind of Judge Dredd side yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah. That's really where anyone who was into comics in the 90s in the UK and to an extent still today would probably channel their their interest and Marvel UK that whole thing kind of passed me by at the time um, and I think probably the the first comic book I actually bought from a shop was uh, a Judge Dredd Batman crossover by Simon Bisley because you know as as a teenager that's what you think comics oh, are yeah. gigantic rippling muscles and heads exploding and all that stuff and um <laughs> And from there, got into 2000 AD. And as a arrogant teenager, kind of started to think, well, hey, this, this isn't just something that drops out of the sky. This is something that people are, it's a job. There's a job that you can make this shit. I mean, that's a, a mind blowing moment. Um, and I can do that better than anyone else can. <laughs> and, then, and then spent three years trying and failing and realizing that actually I couldn't do it better than anybody else. Um, until the day came that somebody accepted my submission and, and that was sort of the, the first published work I got. Oh, that's oh. awesome. I, I, I've sort of found with, with UK comic fans, you, you have the people who, who really, really commit to like the, the 2000 AD stuff and the Judge Dredd stuff, or they sell their soul to the Americans and, and, and whatnot. And it's interesting that you're kind of, sounds like you're kind of halfway uh, between that. That's, that's interesting. That's not something I've ever really encountered before. Well, it's funny. I mean, this is a much longer conversation that really needs to have a glass of wine in hand to get into it. But um, I think it translates better in one direction than in the other. And, and by that, it's impossible to have this conversation without being guilty of horrible generalizations. But if you wish to generalize like the British psyche, it's suspicious and cynical and pessimistic. And so that vibe, which which kind of typifies 2000 AD with a sort of punky anger, translates quite well to American readers, which yeah. is why I think a lot of the, the really big names in American comics started out as British writers in a way that isn't always true in the other direction. We don't respond always quite so well to 
bold, optimistic, idealistic stuff um, because we're just miserable fuckers. And that's <laughs> something we can get past. <laughs> Changing, you know, that's 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 no longer entirely the case, which is why Marvel's doing so well in the UK. But that was certainly how it felt at the time. It felt like um, there wasn't much room for American talent in the UK industry, but there was a need for British talent in the American industry. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting observation. I can I can totally see it now that you've you've pointed that out. Some cynicism sells in a way that optimism doesn't, and that's awful. It's kind of a <laughs> there it is. So as a cynical young reader, was there a particular X-Man you gravitated towards that just stood out as your favorite? Um really like i've always been drawn to the weirdos you know like nightcrawler was was probably the first one i was actively interested in because oh, he didn't yeah. look like what i imagined a superhero looked like yeah. um and and embarrassing though this is i kind of i used to really like gambit because gambit's the opposite of what a, an idealistic superhero is supposed to be you know oh we're 100 percent there with you yeah i was gonna say i think every Every young adult in the early to mid '90s had a, went through a gambit phase. That's for sure. We come back to why I haven't had my hair cut for so long because I'm sculpting it up into the into the flop. <laughs> oh, are you are you doing some gambit for us? <laughs> it's got to be long enough to to flow freely over the head condom. <laughs> oh my god! Head condom is that what it's called? I like that. <laughs> That's what I've always called it. I, who knows what they, what Jim Lee meant for that tattoo? <laughs> so Gambit, Nightcrawler. Is there another weirdo we can mention that'll round out um, the characters that you gravitate towards? Is there a recent character, perhaps? I mean, recently. I mean, it, it will surprise you not in the slightest to know that just because of the way that the career has gone at my end, like Legion. David Haller became the, oh, yeah. became the character that I became utterly obsessed by for, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, not just because he's always been, in my view, quite badly treated as a character. He's always been sort of reduced to this plot point who was um, like a convenient baddie that you could drop into the, into the story when you needed somebody unstable who was ready to explode at any moment. It, it also resonated with me in, oh God, this is another big conversation. Um, one of the beauties of X-Men is that it's so pluripotent with metaphors. And we know this, right? I mean, oh, yeah. X-Men comics of all stripes have been used to subtly or otherwise speak to race, gender, sexuality, uh, class, religion, anything that you can think of that involves some form of othering from uh, prejudicial society. And the one thing that I'd never seen was... Um, a mutant who was speaking directly to mental health yep. in a way that didn't seem preachy and didn't seem hand-wringy or, or overly sort of, woe is me. Um, and I mean, hey, I, I make no bones about it. I'm a depressive and, and I, I talk about being a depressive in the same way that I talk about being asthmatic and that it's just something I have to deal with. And I, I, don't, I don't expect to be made to feel bad because I can't run for very long without being out of breath. Hence, I shouldn't be made to feel bad because I occasionally feel like shit. And so it, it felt like a natural character to be drawn to because the, the sort of emergent conflict was more internal than external. You know, we've got this character who is literally one of the most powerful 
beings on the planet and yet his single worst enemy is his own brain and that's beautiful that's that's rich territory for stories um so yeah i mean just by the fact i'm yammering on about it you can glean that i have a great deal of affection for that character no i'm sorry i'm getting a little emotional because as as flink knows 2020 has just been so rough for for all of us and the way you just articulated mental health and a superhero and his own worst enemy is his mind. I mean, it's just, it's very telling about the kind of writer you are and the stories that kind of come through in your narrative. So thank you for that. I mean, that that's a very beautiful thing. And I think the, the stigma against mental health is still present, even though we should know better as a society and, and hearing people like you talk, there is power in coming forward and admitting well, you know, I, you're, what, what's going on in your head. There's, that is not a weakness at all. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'll tell you this. Um, it was never my intention to write something that was strengthening. It's not like I set out to, to sort of change people's lives. I just wanted to tell a story about something that resonated with me. Yeah. Um, when I go to conventions now, <clears throat> Almost every single convention I go to, somebody will come up to me and talk about X-Men Legacy and will say words to the effect of, thank you so much, this gave me the strength to X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And that's beautiful and it means a great deal to me and I will never stop loving that moment. But as I say to these people, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. People have to be, the the fact that people are saying it gave me the strength to go on, you had the strength to go on. It was you. It wasn't me. You know, maybe I gave you something that made you think about it. And that's beautiful. But it's not me giving you strength. The strength comes from inside. And that's exactly why X-Men Legacy was such an important thing to me and why David Hatter is so important, because his whole ethos was, I can't beat this. I can't cure myself but I can be in charge of myself and I won't accept any apologies and I won't accept anybody else telling me what I can and can't do. I rule me. He kept saying, I rule me. And that was his central thing. And, and so, yeah, that, um, that is a, a long winded digression. <laughs> it's so important to me. Oh, thank you for such a great answer for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that was great. And I mean, obviously, you know, you, you wrote some really um, personal, really heartfelt, stories with legion that that were really you know emotional emotional and 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 character driven um but of course that's not all that that x-men stories are and that that isn't even what all legion stories have been i mean he has been the catalyst for two major crossovers you know age of apocalypse age of x um you you mentioned extinction no what did you say executioner song earlier um so crossovers big 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 part of of x-men do you do you have a favorite x-men crossover is it one of the legion ones or would we be surprised i I can't speak to favorite i can speak to formative because it was the one i remember first reading and it's (laughs) it speaks to the gambit of it all as well it was a (laughs) uh it was a ghost rider x-men little mini event i think it was called something like big trouble in the little easy something like that it ends it ends with a a brood infected ghost rider turning a brood queen inside out that's like the visual that i've got in my head wait where did this take place i don't i don't think i know this one off the top of my head it it was i 
I think it's actually referenced in the Gambit mini series, that first one that we discussed on the podcast oh. a while back. But I I don't remember where it actually first was printed, if it was a separate thing or if it ran in one of the books. Weird. And it's I mean, this it, it may well have been that it appeared in a different format over here than it did over there. So oh, I'm sure to it later. But I, yeah, it was there's all it's all to do with the Thieves Guild and the Assassin's Guild and Belladonna is running around and there's a brood nest under New Orleans. <laughs> the X-Men are investigating it and Ghost Rider shows up and it's all very terse. And then, hey, guess what? You're not going to believe this, guys, but there's a fight in the middle of it where everybody hits everybody Audible else. gasp. I know, I know. Um, and yeah, it ends with a brood-infected Ghost Rider turning a brood queen inside out, like literally prizing its jaws open and popping it inside <laughs> I see why this is your favorite. <laughs> Excuse it, me why I Google this image. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I've read that. It's been a very long time and it, you like just activated a memory for me when you talk about <laughs> Ghost Rider turning the brood queen inside out. I'm like, yep, I, I absolutely <laughs> remember that. It's that, that one doesn't get the love that, that it deserves, but it's certainly when you- That's it right here? It, yeah, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah it's like it. probably a new cover. I love yeah. the art. Uh, I'm going to be Instagramming this later today. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I'm curious because I think you're a really gifted writer and you just have such a great approach to your writing. I'm curious, when did all of that begin for you? Like, when did you start writing? And I know you mentioned you thought maybe you were going to go the artist route. What... What was that moment that you started first writing words? That what, what kind of was it something in you that just had this itch to write something, or were you influenced by like comics and you wanted to take your own stab at it? I think I was writing stories long before I encountered comics. I remember being the kid in in like English class who would always choose the creative writing assignment rather than um, writing an essay. Um, yeah, I think that I was already, it's difficult because it was such a long bloody time ago. Um, <laughs> I and... can't remember last week, so. Yeah, well, quite, right? Time no longer has any meaning. And, and like my first published comic, I think I was like 19 or 20. And so there's not that big a gap between when I would have been sitting at home writing short stories in prose and making the conscious decision that I could have a crack at comics as well. But at the time, it probably felt like a, a very long gap. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I had always and continue to be very interested in writing prose. And then along came this interest in comics and I thought, well, shit, I can do that. And um, I spent, I think, two, three years sending submissions to 2000 AD. It's, it's interesting, I won't digress too far, but 2000 AD is one of the only uh, mature content comics existing in the world today, which has a dedicated slot for submissions. Like it's an anthology title and every week in the comic is a five page or four page story specifically given over to new writers and new artists, um, which is gold because you yeah. don't get those opportunities yeah. anywhere else. And so I think I spent a long time sending really, really terrible ideas. And then at some point, thought it might be quite a smart move to actually pay attention to the advice the editor was kind enough to send back to me with his rejection notice. I've got some incredible rejections. I've got a, I've got a rejection from a, the then editor, a guy called David Bishop, that just says, um, 
I'm sorry, Simon. We just don't think you have the spark of crazed ingenuity it takes to write for 2000 AD. <laughs> wow. Just ignore that. Keep going. Keep going. And the next one that came through a month or two after, it says, and I quote, Dear Simon, no, 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 italics, no. Yours, David Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And I carried on, and I carried on, and I carried on. And then eventually uh, I started getting some, some positive feedback. And then there came uh, like a mini convention called DreadCon where they they hosted a thing called a pitch fest, which is literally what it sounds like. People were invited to stand up and you had one minute to pitch your idea. And then the audience voted on it at the end. And I won the first one of those um, and got invited to write up my story. And, and the rest is history. I, I just think it's so interesting that people automatically assume that writers just come into the world, they pitch something and it's automatically accepted. I'm... I'm I'm circulating my memoir now with my with my literary agent and the rejections I have gotten have been of that same vein like someone said I was a chatty celebrity with no goal <laughs> you know and you just plow through with it and I think what you said about moving forward and then you get better it it's very true and rejection is not an end all everyone gets rejected I mean hey there's there's an awful lot that's been said about talent and skill and network and who you know and all that stuff but there's not much written about tenacity and it really is nine tenths of it is down to just getting back up and carrying on. well what i i think is particularly Im impressive is not only the tenacity and and the drive that you you kept going it's that you were you got rejected from editors but as soon as you got your work in front of an audience you were embraced. And I mean, I think that that really says a lot is that sometimes, you know, editors might not have their finger on the pulse, they might not know exactly what an audience is looking for. And I think that, it, you know, that opportunity is obviously it's it's changed the trajectory of your of your life in a way. And I think that that's just in incredible. And by the way, crazed ingenuity, I'm stealing that. I love that. I'm going to use that to describe <laughs> all of my professional behavior from now on. So what I'm hearing is that uh, I'm always right and the editor's always wrong. Is that is that? Yeah, right? totally, <laughs> totally. Just 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 tell Jordan D. White that Flinkman said, <laughs> "Don't do that." Well, you know what I love that you just said, Flink, and I think this is very true. I I used to work at Harper Collins and Hachette, and some manuscripts come in and you're like, "Oh, this is crap. This is garbage. Pass." And another publisher picks it up. And it gets all of the awards. It gets such recognition. National Book Awards are celebrating it. It's a very subjective yeah. industry. Brilliant. And one person's interpretation of your work is not an end all, you know? Yeah. And you just have to keep going on. But And shit, I mean, look, I, it, it might be the wrong day of the week. You might be in a bad mood. As an editor or as a writer, things will read utterly differently. I have the setup that I'm staring at right now, I have two portrait orientation monitors side by side, because I find that if I'm reading prose in portrait, it's, I mean, shit, we read books in portrait. Why the hell would we put our monitors in horizontal as a, as a standard? Yeah. It just reads totally differently. If I'm looking at it on this way around or this way around, it's a different book. It's a different story. So you can only imagine how hard it is for an editor to be 
remotely objective about whether something is good or bad because five minutes from now I might think it's brilliant whereas right now it reads like toss right right yeah it's all it, it's all subjective and it could all change on a whim that that's <laughs> just how it goes but uh so you mentioned you know obviously you were reading Judge Dredd you were reading 2000 AD those those British comics are are sort of what made you sit down to think okay maybe I want to give this writing comics thing a shot but is there you know, when, once you got into the more mainstream, the X-Men comics, is there an X-Men writer that you would say has inspired you in, in your work? That's a really good question. Um, I, won't, I won't say inspired per se, because I, one thing I feel quite strongly about is that I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to ever feel like I'm trying too hard to emulate somebody. And yeah. I know that's not what the question implies, but... but um, I have read a great many great writers and been impressed by what they have done and thought, holy shit, that's great. But yeah. not very often have I thought that's so good that I'm going to start doing that myself. Oh, yeah. That's not how I approach it. I guess one thing to say, um, Grant Morrison's run sort of taught me a lot. And, and I, I, I don't think, I think it's the best X-Men run. What it did was to teach me the importance of um, the present moment in ongoing comics, right? It's, it's the purest expression that I've ever read of the reality that ongoing comics in general and X-Men perhaps in particular are soap opera. And you can read that whole run and enjoy every single moment of it and then not necessarily remember very much of it. <laughs> <laughs> We are new X-Men stands here. So we're, we're, we're hearing you loud and clear. <laughs> it's that thing where um, it's so much more to do with the journey than it is to do with the destination. And that's quite alien for me. I'm, I'm uh, a writer who, um, this is going too far into my weird writing peccadillos, but I refuse to start writing a story if I don't know how it ends. Because in my view, a story does not matter unless it has an ending. It simply yeah. doesn't have value. And so the only way I can approach this is to realign myself to be seeing it as a series of sort of modular stories. Like it's a seasonal thing. You know, we all have the, the box set analogy available to us these days. So that makes sense. But I don't know that that's how Grant was thinking at the time. One big beat to the next big beat. And then after the big beat would be the fallout. And the fallout would also have some B plots that rumble through from the first section into the next section. So it never really feels like it just sort of stops dead. Yeah. And that's that's what, if you're an X-Men editor, that's exactly what you want, you know? You want this to feel like it has the illusion of incredible endings and world-changing beats, but never actually seeming to come to some sort of definitive conclusion. So I learned that from Grant, and that's something I continue to, to, to struggle with, but I'm getting better at it. Um, Claremont, I mean, where do you begin with Claremont? Just so, you know, so much. Just, but I'll tell you where I will begin with Claremont and end with Claremont. Um, and it's the, it's the purest homage that I can pay. When I was writing X-Men Legacy and then X-Force after that, my editor used to use the term Claremonting as a verb. You would Claremont something, to Claremont something. And to Claremont something is to not know what it means but to put it in any way, because at some point it might be useful to you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
So, you know, here's a character running down a hallway. Let's just clam on a couple of doorways in the back there in case we need to come back and say that there's a secret in the background. And that's exactly what we did. So, uh, yeah, I learned that from him. I love what you just said that. Um, I love what you just said because when I was speaking with Zeb Wells, he talked about what Hickman is trying to do right now is, I guess, Claremontine, <laughs> which setting up little seeds for everyone else to come back to and, and, and take something from there. And as Flink knows, I was frustrated at the beginning of Hickman's run because I'm like, so much is being thrown at the wall. I can't keep up on all these. But now I think when you frame it that Claremont is sort of the structure you want to do. You want to create all these narratives that other writers can pull from or source from eventually one day, maybe not today, but years from now, that's a really smart approach to comics. And, and Morrison, they did that as well. I yeah. mean, so much of new X-Men. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's about laying down fertile soil so that seeds can be planted rather than imagining that there is some end of the field. Interesting. So your X-Men legacy writer was giving you, or excuse me, your X-Men legacy editor was giving you that advice. I, I want to rewind a little bit from when you were selling your first comic at 19 and when you started working on X-Men legacy, what was the path like to Marvel? Um, I think that um, I had a couple of series under my belt at 2000 AD and I had become very close friends with a particular artist who was getting a lot of buzz in the States. Um, and he was friendly with a Marvel editor. And we went to New York one year at the convention and we all sat down in a pub and got along very well. Um, and yeah, off the back of that, I, I mean, it wasn't like I was offered a job straight away. It was just a, hey, well, you're on my radar now. So if you've got some ideas to send through, do. Um, my recollection is that I sent through a good few ideas and said editor was kind of interested in them and he liked them all. But what he wasn't saying then, which I now understand with the, the benefit of hindsight is that I was pitching such weird little characters that nobody gave a crap about that he, he was never going to um, green light any of this. Um, but it was presumably enough that when he did have a job, when somebody above him had come to him and said, okay, we need somebody to fill this slot on a Silver Surfer comic, as it happened at the time, he came to me. Um, and so that was my first Marvel gig, was a, a four-issue Silver Surfer mini um, with Tan Eng Huat, who would, would later go on to, to draw uh, X-Men Legacy with me. So it kind of all comes around and goes around, you know? Yeah. Did, when you, when you finally came to X-Men Legacy, did Mike Carey ever give you some advice or some pointers since he had really made that book his own and then you came and you made your book your own? So I'm curious if you guys ever had no, a chat. We were not in touch at the time. We, we've chatted a lot since. He's a lovely bloke. Um, but no, there was no, I mean, I honestly couldn't tell you whether there was a gap between the runs or whether it was just from one to the other. It's, it's not something I was ever really aware of. But it's funny, my career is sort of following Mike's in an odd way. A lot of the things he's done, I'm now doing, like X Men Legacy and Hellblazer, and um, you both write novels, and we both write novels. So fingers crossed, I'm about to get all my novels made into 
multi-million dollar movie, <laughs> then I can uh, retire to California. Not that he's done that, but yeah. That would... So, so I, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about X-Men Legacy, but I have to say that I am actually a huge fan of your run on, on X-Force. Uh, you actually write an, a super awesome uh, Marrow, but it's safe to say that the, you know, the X-Men character that you are best remembered for writing thus far is, of course, Legion. How did writing that character and writing X-Men Legacy change your career? <sighs> I mean, it sort of didn't. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a lie. Clearly, that's a lie. I, as a result of having written that, I was offered X Force, and I have sort of mixed feelings about X Force. And thank you for 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 being the the fan. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was I thought it was weird in all the right ways. I thought that your cast was really interesting and doing interesting things that other people you know, wouldn't uh, situations that they wouldn't put people in. I, I, I liked the Psylocke and Cable situation. I thought that that was fun. And I thought that it fit in with the version of Betsy that she, she was at that time. So I, yeah, I was all in. I thought it was great. Thank you. I mean, I, I'm very proud of the run. There's, there's things about it, which I would do differently now if I had my time again. Um, I'm not sure I was writing for the artist that was involved rather than in spite of the, you know, that Rocky Kim is a superbly talented artist. And I, and I think that I was probably writing without knowing who was going to draw it at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, like I said, I have mixed feelings about that. It, it feels like what I should have done if I had been um, purely interested in building my brand at Marvel is to make it a big, bold, explodo, simple, but interesting exploration of wet works and stealth. Um, and instead, because I'm me, it got all fiddly widdly about the psychology and the, and the, the weirdness of it all. And, and that's who I am. And, and to answer the question, what, what X-Men Legacy really did and what X-Force continued to do was to stuff me into a pigeonhole marked <laughs> weirdo cerebral guy who <clears throat> writes, you know, sort of, uh, 1990s style vertigo comics dressed up as marvel superhero stuff um we love that i was gonna we say love that especially flink when you mention like little characters that no one cares about i guarantee you flink would have been all over those pitches oh yeah oh i would have probably eaten them all up and and what you what you said about x-force and what you made it versus versus what maybe it should have been i i I love what you did. I thought that it was, X-Force is known for their big explosions and their wild plots that don't always make sense. And you gave it like more of the, more nuance than that. And I thought that it was, it was great. It was great. Cause it still, to me, it had the action, but it also made me think, you know what I mean? And like most, you know, a, a lot of X-Men comics from that particular era didn't, they didn't satisfy that, you know what I mean? They didn't make me think too hard. I could read them in like two and a half minutes and be like, oh, well, that was fun. And then, you know, well, every comic these days is decompressed. So maybe it took five minutes to get through X-Force, but it still, it left me thinking when when I was done. And and I, I thought it was good. I, I, I wouldn't 
ask you to change anything about it. I think that you you nailed it. Well, thank you. And, and I mean, as mission statements go, making people think about stuff whilst hopefully also enjoying it is, is kind of the, the best that I could ever hope for. Um, that said, as a result of those two titles in particular, I, I've sort of spent a decade trying very hard to persuade editors that whereas I can do that and whereas I can do Hellblazer and whereas I can do kind of creepy weepy indie books, I'm okay about doing punchy stuff as well. <laughs> and and uh, they're a little reticent to let me do that, um, which, hey, that's that's their that's their right. Um, the loveliest thing I can say about X Men Legacy is that when the first issue came out, it was excoriated. Like you've never seen such a badly reviewed comic. It was getting one out of ten right across the board, and then two years later, the same fuckers who gave it those reviews were writing these eloquent eulogies about how it was tragic that it was being cancelled in its prime. Fuckers. And, and I mean, sure, that's mission successful because I was able to persuade them that even though it wasn't what they thought they wanted, it turned out to be the thing that, that kind of touched them after all. Um, but yeah, I'd like I'd like more opportunities to just do simple, bold, fun stuff, because that's that's something I have in me. It's just not really something I've had the opportunity to do much of. I'd be very interested to read something in that in that vein from you, for sure. So thinking about what you just said about, you know, what you want the opportunity to do and what you have historically tackled as a writer, I, I think you kind of answered this already, but I, I want to ask the, the question more pointingly. What do you think as an X writer you bring to the table? Do you think it's making readers think? Do you think it's doing very weird, you know, throwbacks or... Or do you think maybe you have something in you that's more punchy that you're excited to show readers? It's weirdo cerebral guy all over again. <laughs> we'll have him all day, every day. I just want to say, you know, you know, Way of X is so completely hyped. Everyone is talking about this book. Like, and, and it's because you're writing it. That's very just, cool. just putting it out there. No pressure. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. <laughs> great to know. Um, my writing process is 10% sitting around overthinking things and then 90% <laughs> reeling back and trying to, to make them into something fun. Sounds um, like my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> um, that seems to work quite well with the X-Men world because it's so perfectly tooled for the intellectual shit by which I mean like the metaphors I was talking about earlier on everything in X-Men can be reduced to metaphors if you really want to and you shouldn't do that because it takes all the fun and the joy out of it but it could the the intellectual shit is so perfectly in tune with the character shit with the 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 emotion and the the um the journeys that these characters are on that it is possible to overthink this stuff and still turn in a really fun characterful emotional story and nobody feels like they're being preached at nobody feels like it's it's overly analytical um so yeah i guess i guess that's the answer i mean with with way of x uh, i absolutely overthought it for a very long time but it's been so fun to just go okay now i know 
all the big dumb thought, philosophical, ethical nonsense that I'm interested in, but now I can just zoom in on what it is to be one of the characters who's in the middle of all this, trying to figure it out for themselves. Um, and it doesn't hurt that the Krakoan era is so good for big ethical questions and big like sci-fi, Asimov style. It's, I mean, we're not telling a story about characters, we're telling a story about characters and their civilization. I'm, I'm quite fond, this is a really lazy, cheap way of putting it, but I'm very fond of saying that Way of X is not a book about people, it's a book about people becoming a people. And that's, that's kind of where I'm going with this. I couldn't agree more after issue one, 100%. Yeah. I, we, we have questions about, especially the younger mutants and the identity that they're adopting and their perspective on the uh, human culture. But everything you said was 100% like awesome. And I'm going to kick it to Flink because I can segue into Way of X, but we have a few more questions before we do that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, you're, you're coming in in the Krakoan era where things are so different and so new and so interesting, um, you know, especially given where the X-Men were at the last time you were, you were writing them. What, what is it like coming into the X office again during such an exciting time like the Krakoan era, like Reign of X? It's, I mean, it was fucking intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but you know what? Uh, I was anxious, you would be, wouldn't you? But it's uh, for the first time in any work for hire shared universe job I've done, it feels like a cohesive community. And, and by that, I speak to the writer's room of it all. You know, we, we make no secret about the fact that we're, we're quite a close-knit team. Um, we speak every day. It's, it, it, the, it is the closest I've ever come in comics to a writer's room in TV. And I've been in a couple of TV writer's rooms and it's, it's such a unique vibe. And this feels a lot like that in the sense that there's camaraderie and um, an air of additive um, interpersonal bouncing is the best way I can put it. We are constantly helping each other come up with ideas which then don't belong to anybody. They're just the room's ideas. And what's weird about it is that we're not all working on the same thing. We're all working on totally different books that occupy different parts of the, the scenario. So yeah, it's, it's not like anything I've done before. And they've just all been so welcoming and uh, encouraging and forgiving because I don't shut the fuck up when I go into a room <laughs> like this. I'm like, oh, I'm a bit nervous, so I better just talk constantly until they accept me. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a lot easier and more wonderful than I had any right to expect. Is are are you enjoying that experience? I mean, it seems to me like in my mind, writing comic books, you're you're very siloed. You're alone with yourself and your thoughts and your ideas. And this sounds like the total opposite of that. Is it that? Is that new? Is it exciting? Do you enjoy it? Very much. And, and actually, without sort of, without jumping up and waving my fist and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> comics, are, comics are like the opposite of siloed. Bear in mind, so I've written novels. Uh, writing prose for me is the most painful thing you can do in the world. Like I always say, I hate writing, but I love having written. In comics, you can't escape the fact that everything you do is collaboration. And at some point, you're going to have to turn over your script to an artist and you better hope that they're good at their job and you better hope they're communicative. And so you better hope that you're able to communicate. So 
extending that outwards into a sort of collective writer's experience is not the great leap it could have been. Um, it would have been horrible if any of the personalities involved were toxic and they're not. Yeah. And by the way, there's an old adage in TV's writer's room that if you can't tell anybody who the prick in the room is, it's probably because you're the prick in the room. Oh so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I say that with, uh, with informed consent. <laughs> <laughs> Are you blowing up the X slack? <laughs> so, so, you know, one of the things that Jordan D. White uh, spoke to was the way the X office is being managed right now. And he, when I was talking to him, he said he doesn't think there's any other team out there in comics that's on the same page like you guys. I think that's 100% accurate. You see it in the stories. I mean, even you're writing Way of X, Leah is on X Factor. The stories, though very different, you can tell they are part of a much larger narrative. And I'm curious because everything I've heard about Hickman has been that he's a really great guy. And he really loves unifying people. And he's always down to listen. And he always has his ear to the ground. What is that experience like working with Hickman? Do you, do you get that sense that he is, I don't want to say like a patriarchal figure of the X-Men right now, but he does have a guiding hand. And how has that relationship been like for you? I mean, I, I so desperately want to flip the table and say, no, nah, he's an asshole. <laughs> But no, he's not. He's not an arsehole. He's wonderful. He's um, he's all of that. It, I mean, I have very little to add. He um, he's a genius in terms of ideas. Like I think within the first two hours of uh, we have like a, a, a every now and then every couple of weeks we all get together on a big Zoom summit call, um, just to talk over ideas and to to sort of catch up and um. Within two hours of doing one of those, he had just off the cuff come up with ideas that saved other people's bacon. Like there's always, as writers, we're always accidentally getting ourselves into corners or getting caught out by corporate shit that we have no control over. And often the, the nature of the collaboration in these things is not so much to say, help, I need a story idea, but to say, I don't know what to do now, help me. And he, he's got this talent for just sort of, hey, here's a great idea. And, and just off the top of his head, he's saved, he saved me at least twice with things that I didn't, couldn't see a clear way out of. So that's ingenious. But he's, he's also very good at being, manager is the wrong word because it, it speaks to, to business and it's not that. It's more like he... He sees himself as protective over the room. He sees himself as an interlocutor. He's like a hierophant between us and the suits. And without entirely fostering an us versus them culture, uh, he will go to war on our behalf if something seems to be going out of our hands. And that's so valuable because, uh, you know, as you touched on this earlier on, it's very easy to feel like you're on your own. A, a little cog in a big machine. And if you're suddenly part of a bigger group, and especially if that big group has its <laughs> union rep to to take the fight up, upstairs, then yeah, you feel ironclad. It's really nice. So is that his role on Krokoa? He's a union rep? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. He's, he's the head of X. <laughs> yeah. he's... I mean, it's it's funny because at the same time, Jordan and Jerry all sort of fulfill the same 
role, but in different, <laughs> like a trinity. It's like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost <laughs> of the ex office. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, we could not be more fortunate in being looked after as creatives. I have That's to tell amazing. you, we spoke with a comic book seller and I, because it's an X-Men podcast, I'm like, oh, tell us about the X-Men relaunch and, and Hickman. And, and he paused and he said, I want you to know that Jonathan Hickman is genuinely one of the best people I have met in the comic book industry. And that he sat down with me to explain what was going to be going on with the X-Men and why this was worth my time as a seller. And I'm just thinking this guy is talking to a comic book seller all the way through to a writer who's launching a new book that has a lot of hype to it. I mean, th that goes to show you what a great human being he is. He and and X-Men stands, we, we can tend to dehumanize the figures in it. And we can forget that it's a business. I know Blink is like... <laughs> <laughs> Flink and I have been friends for many, many years, and we have cycled through our fandom in very interesting ways. But I think what is so clear is that Hickman just has a good sense of the industry, of the talent, and of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. It's a, a confluence of uh, being rational, being real, being realistic, but also giving a shit. And, and that's quite unusual that you have all those things in one person. Yeah, and I, and I think X-Men fans as a whole, we're, we've, uh, almost across the board, we've, we've given a, a lot of credit to Hickman. He has, he, we, we put our faith in him and so far he's delivered. Like it feels like after a couple of years there, it felt like the X-Men were kind of rudderless. They didn't have a real direction. They had the Inhumans crap hanging over oh, them. I'm triggered, triggered. That's a triggered. trigger warning. And, but it's just like, it, it, genuinely feels like number one, we have somebody who cares. Number two, somebody who has a vision. And number three, somebody who is helping keep everybody else, you know, on the same page. It comes across in the work. And as somebody who reads 25 X-Men titles a month, it's, it's nice to feel that. Because like I said earlier, sometimes it can feel like comics are written in a silo when you read one comic where a character shows up and behaves one way, but the next week they show up in another comic book that com completely contradicts their appearance the week before. And we, we haven't had that in the Hickman era. And, and that's, it's nice. It's nice as a reader uh, to have that. But we're here today, of course, to discuss Way of X. Um, it, it's like, 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 Dayspring mentioned, I, I have been hyped for this for so hyped. So Zai. hyped. So he's so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Sorry. I'm like Jesse Spano taking caffeine pills. <laughs> um, obviously, the lead of your book is Nightcrawler, who is just, I mean, to say that he's one of the most iconic X Men would be a total, total understatement. What? do you think makes Nightcrawler so special as a character? Why has he become such an icon to X-Men fans? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, the, the dumb answer is that he looks amazing. And, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not being stupid about that, you know? There's, there's an awful lot to be said for just being utterly iconic in, in design. So yeah, I mean, Dave Cockrum knew what he was doing with that. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the... the we don't need to talk about that top line. But um, for me, as a storyteller, it's conflict, isn't it? I mean, that's that's what you want from your characters. You want characters who are 
awesome, kick-ass, but relatable. And you can't be relatable in this world unless you're kind of fucked up because we're all secretly a little bit fucked up, aren't we? And so, yeah. So here's a character who is, uh, he's a bit of a priest and he's a bit of a pirate and he's a, he's a bit of a prankster. And those three things shouldn't all coexist, and yet they do. Um, and he's just the, like there's there's dialogue in in issue one. I, I won't even try and quote it directly, but it's it's words to the effect of uh, Charles Xavier is sending him off on a particular mission, and and Nightcrawler doesn't understand. He's like, why why me? You know, you can get into people's brains, you can interrogate their dreams. Why would you possibly need me? And the answer is because even though Xavier can peer into people's brains, Nightcrawler's more human than any of them. He understands people much better than anybody else does because he is like an ordinary person in that he is a little bit fucked up. Um, and I love that. In, in an era where all mutants are being asked to ask and not necessarily answer very difficult questions, he's the person who has the most. And what I love about him is that he doesn't pretend to have answers. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're launching on a story, which is not really about mutant religion, I mean, there's, there's that tension in how I'm trying to market this book, because it's very easy to say it's about creating a new mutant religion. It, it sort of isn't. It's about somebody who acknowledges the need for something which fulfills that role, trying to figure out what to put into that gap. Um, whilst also being a Catholic priest and, and not wanting to violate his own faith, whilst understanding that there are other mutants of all sorts of other creeds and faiths and not wanting to violate their own beliefs, acknowledging that there are plenty of mutants who don't have any religion and not wanting to violate that. So he's just the perfect way into a story that is sensitive and thoughtful and doesn't start from a position of knowing everything. Did you pitch Way of X off of your ideas or did the X office or Hickman come to you and were like, we want to do a Nightcrawler centered story and we think you may be the perfect writer for it. Like what, what, what was the situation? Cause I'm hearing you speak now and I'm in, I'm in awe of like what you just responded. And I'm curious if it was your initial pitch for Nightcrawler. The honest answer, I was thinking about this the other day, I don't know the, the exact timeline of events. Uh, <laughs> basically, COVID brain. Yeah, well, no, it's not even that. It's, it's more uh, not knowing when things happen behind the scenes. So two years ago at Thought Bubble, which would have been end of the year, I was hanging out with Jerry and I said, oh, I've been loving this new X-Men stuff. Uh, do you think it's worth me getting in touch and Jerry said that they had actually been talking about me as a potential writer to be involved because they all loved X-Men Legacy. So to circle back to your earlier question about what X-Men Legacy has done for me, it allowed me to have a very happy drink in a pub in Harrogate with Jerry Duggan. Um, cut forwards a couple of months, uh, got in touch with Jordan, sent him just three random pitches and one of them slightly touched on this. It, it's sort of, I, I can't really go into it without giving away some of the plans that I have coming down the pipe. But apropos the fact that what seems to be a quest for a new religion is not really that. It's about a quest for a way to help people live. Um, 
And Jordan came back very positively about that one. And at some point around this time, X-Men 7, 9 came out. The one with the Crucible and the one where mm-hmm. Matt Crawler is specifically talking about this. Yeah. Um, and, and we sort of coalesced around that. And it, it sort of became the thing that would launch this book. Uh, and then along came the pox and... Uh, the book just disappeared down the plug hole and it seemed this by the way was in the course of a really shit week where five different projects that I had set up all, all got cancelled oh. um, so that was not fun but Ooh. it just sort of seemed to be done and then uh, towards the end of the year Jordan got back in touch and said you know what we're going to do this anyway so so off we go um, so yeah, that uh, that's kind of how we got to where we are. Um, the book, it was pitched as what it is, which is something which asks difficult questions and presents totally unexpected answers, but which at the same time should feel fun and thrilling and sometimes funny and sometimes horrific and all the things that you want out of your X-Men book, but which is also interested in all the stuff that as as fans of the X-Men and as people who've been really digging this new Krakoan era, the things that have been kind of gnawing at the back of our minds, like, I'm not sure that that's actually as utopian as they say it is. Yeah. Is that is that not actually a little bit horrible? Yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure that that's a nice thing to be doing. All those questions that we've been sort of, are they going to touch on this or are we just being asked to accept that? This is the book where we touch on that. I love yes. that. I love that because you're you're right. There have been moments in the Krakoan era where you're like, this all seems, there's there's been some sinister undertones, maybe sinister might not, well, sinister might be the totally appropriate word. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, there have been those questions and I'm glad to hear that, you know, someone like you is out there asking those questions as well and maybe gonna give us some answers. And I, I have to tell you, I am so curious what your other pitches were. I'm sure that that's something you're probably not free to talk about, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stew on those. <laughs> He's those gonna stew on those for years, Sai. Well, I just think that you have a really interesting perspective on on X Men. So I, 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 you know, like we've mentioned, your legacy and your your X Force both were sort of different from everything else that was being published around that time. So I'm curious to see. Well, okay. it, so I'll give you. I'll give you one. Uh, I pitched a a sword series, a space thing, uh, an X Men in space book, and the response was, as you would imagine. This is great, but guess who we've got right? right so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but hey, he's the man for the job, so I, I'm not not sad about that one at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So fitting in, you know, you have your own little puzzle piece that you have to fit into this larger Krakoan puzzle at this point. What what has been the biggest challenge of that? What have you have you hit any big roadblocks <laughs> writing Way of X? Just, I mean, I guess squeezing it all in has been the biggest challenge. Um, exactly what I was just talking about. So many big ideas and so much overthinking of sociological, ethical, philosophical stuff that you really don't want to... It's not like a fucking Star Wars crawl, is it? I don't want to just hammer my readers around the face with information. And so it's it's about finding organic ways to interrogate some of these ideas 
whilst also having it feel like a really fun X-Men comic. Um, so, for instance, that one of the structures we landed upon was that we're going to look at each of the three Krakoan laws and give each one of those a, its own issue, just to sort of look at that and see how it works. Um, so, for instance, issue three of Way of X is called The Joy of X, and it's all about Make More Mutants and <laughs> what that looks like and, and how Cue that the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's fun. It's really fun. Uh, so squeezing it all in, uh, the, the reason I'm sort of hesitating is that um, there's some unexpected calendar stuff that I know about that you don't know about. Uh, which, yeah, which change, it doesn't, it, it doesn't change things. All I can say is that we've got some interesting plans and it's all very premeditated. Um, and Way of X is going towards somewhere very <laughs> interesting. My God, what a gnomic load of crap to, to say to you. I'm sorry. No. I love it. Like, yeah, watching you are, you like, look at yourself us. and not. <laughs> Yeah, no, we are, we love that tease. Is there, I want to ask this question respectfully, because you just sort of, you know, we're very coy with that response, but in a great way, I just, is there a particular thing that you are so excited for readers to experience for Way of X? And, and you can be as coy and as general about it as, as you need to be. But I just, we're seeing you and we're excited, like just hearing you talk. Is there's, there something in particular you, you can't wait to share with readers? Yeah, I mean, so much. Like there's, what can I say? What can I say? <laughs> uh, okay, so one of the fun things is that we're presenting it in the familiar dialect of somebody is out there fucking with us and we need to figure out who it is before we can beat them. Yeah. And we're like, okay, let's just tell them who it is. <laughs> so, like, by the end of issue two, we're just going to tell you who it is. And it's kind of mind-blowing, and it's not something that anybody's expected. Um, and it's not, it's not who you think it is either. <laughs> Based on a lot of the teasing that I've been doing on social media, a lot of people think they've figured that out, and they haven't. I assure you they have not. Okay. Um, the What else can I talk about? There's a beat at the end of issue four which I think is like, it's the thing that got me the, the gig. It was part of the pitch that made everybody go, what? That, that, that I think will change the, the sort of X landscape in a, in a fairly significant way for a long time to come. Um, but again, I'm just dangling awful riddles in front of you. With a it's okay. <laughs> you're, 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 you're like a prophet. <laughs> I, yeah, it's it's been, the, the bush is on fire and I invite you. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the fun of these interviews is like, oh, yeah. we're asking for spoilers, which clearly you can't, you can't tell us. So it, it, it's just kind of fun to, to watch writers squirm and, and, and sort of over explain things while not saying anything at all. I, I, I love it. it. Bring on, bring on issue such four. It's joy because the X office right now is so engaged with the X-Men community. And it's just been such a pleasure from the X-Men election to even sitting down with you right now. It's just been a fun time during a very shitty time in our oh, lives, yeah. you know? So thank you for that. Many, many of the personalities in the X office understand that it's such an engaged fandom and it's such a, 
um, articulate fandom. And, and if, if only because so many died in the wall X fans aren't just into it because it's cool and they love the look of the characters. They're into it because it literally speaks to their identity as people yep. in a way that almost no other superheroic shared universe characters do. And, and that's gold dust for storytellers. So Preach. we'd be kind of dumb to, to not engage with that fandom because they are, they're all the marketing we need to do. You know, if, 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 if we've got you guys enjoying what we're doing, then we don't need to advertise. It's that simple. Oh yeah. We'll talk about it. Sun up to sundown. That's for sure. <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> so as anyone who might have listened to the, the, our old podcast, Generations of X, this, this next line is going to be not surprising to, to any of those listeners, but I am a huge, huge fan of the teen new X-Men <gasps> cast. I'm shocked. Shocked, are you? Shocked. Uh, clearly, you are too. I mean, your book has Pixie. It's got Loa. It has DJ, all of them. Um, love them all. Uh, super happy that they're all getting some play. They're, they're, they're not characters that, that get a lot of panel time. But specifically, I think DJ might be the most surprising team addition in the entire Kirk Cohen <laughs> era. Most of the appearances he's, he's made as a character have been just purely, purely background. Yet you have him up front speaking in your very first issue. What, what made you pick someone so obscure like DJ for Way of X? I mean, I think the word obscurity is probably the, the one that matters, you know. I, I, uh, it's tricky because whilst I have become fond of the character and whilst he has an important role to play in the story, I must disabuse you of the notion that he is part of a team in the sense that we're familiar with. Like, yeah. Um, this sort of goes back to what I was being very vague about before. Way of X does not begin from the position of having a team dynamic. Right. Um, we come into issue one with Nightcrawler on a reconnaissance mission with a, a, a group of young mutants and they're doing a particular job and it's a lot of fun and, and it sort of brings us into the wider story. Um, and more importantly, for the purpose of this question, we then continue to check in with those kids throughout the rest of the story. But we are doing so in the way that like an ensemble TV show would, as opposed to them being one cohesive unit, which keeps going out to do missions together. Um, DJ's just kind of fun and, and the obscurity of the character made me giggle. And I wanted to see what it looks like when somebody has to scroll through their playlist before <laughs> before using a particular skill. Um, and there's a lot of stuff coming later in the first arc, which has to do with partying and sort of expressions of youth culture. And he's very useful as a character for those. And he, he's sort of, he's in this little unit of friendship, which has coalesced around Pixie and it's DJ and Blink and Lower. Um, and they are, they're sort of our, our weather vane as to how life on Krakoa is affecting teenagers in particular. And we, we bring in some others 
uh, like Mercury has a very big role to play in, in a couple of the later issues. <laughs> Um, and, and bear in mind that this is all sort of happening while the Hellfire Gala is, is being prepared for and then happening. So there's an awful lot of excitement about that. Um, and it's all very much building to a, a, a really crazy climax that I can't say anything about. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm just waffling away now. But I, I guess what I'm getting at is that I'm fascinated by the character and it's been a real pleasure giving him some airtime but I don't want anybody thinking that just because he appears in those first yeah. few pages that we've got like a team dynamic that he features in. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm glad that you that you clarified that. I probably misspoke. I, I meant to say cast because it's it's pretty clear that this isn't going to be just your standard X Men team book, and that's that's great. I think you know we we've got a lot of those. I think it'll be interesting to sort of just see something like this. But you did specifically mention. I I, I want to make sure we do get to see him using his powers. We do. Good, because I, I'm, I've been struggling to think of an occasion where we've actually have, have seen him use them. And I mean, in, in theory, he's this really powerful mutant because he has access to all of these different power sets based on whatever genre of music yeah. uh, he's listening to. So I think that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm really interested to see how you're going to utilize that and how Bob Quinn uh, is going to illustrate it. But as the as the resident Dazzler fan around here, I knew this here, question was going to come. Music and a playlist. You knew it. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about music and mutants. The, the word who's Dazzler that behind never... you? Who's that behind you? The Queen Dazzler. <laughs> uh, I I have to ask what what do you think Dazzler's music? What power would would Dazzler's music give DJ? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um... Well, there is an art, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but the the original description of his powers, like they all do different things, different genres of music. Uh, I don't know, something something stunning and uh, and light oriented. Like there's a, there's a scene in issue one where somebody shoots at him with a shotgun and he has to choose Tchaikovsky off his little playlist <laughs> because classical music gives him a gives him a force field. What I will say uh, as, a, as a naked attempt to dodge that question, because I don't <laughs> know the answer, is that Dazzler does play quite a significant role in this book. Oh, you just made his day. <laughs> My whole day. Like, I have just been waiting. And this, here's, 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 here's my thing. In this Krakoan era where mutants are celebrities, around the world, essentially. Where is the mutant celebrity? What is she doing in all of this? She should be the Krakoan ambassador. She should be all over the place. And she hasn't, she hasn't been. Well, so well, si, I'm glad you, that you're using her. So si, you put her there in one panel at the Magneto surprise. She is there. Yeah, that's the first time we see her in issue one. And then um, how can I tease this? Let's see. Okay. so. You're going to make his day. Like the, my DM my day is already made. <laughs> <laughs> we tingle in the Peter Eustonov sense. The uh, the whole thrust of the book is to do with finding a way to unite mutantdom in such a way that the lowliest mutant feels as important and as meaningful as the A-listers who go running off to have adventures and wear exciting costumes. And so this, of course, all being tangled up with villains and exploding stuff and, and all the things that you would expect. But the, the, the philosophical thrust of it is 
Nightcrawler is trying to find cultural ideas to bring everybody together. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> because, because if you're the best known mutant maker of art, you're clearly going to have a role to play in that. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, she should be, this is, this is what I have been saying. Dazzler should be at the forefront of K-pop 2.0. <laughs> Krakoan Pop. She should be the founder of this genre and be a megastar. That's all I'm saying. If you want that idea, you can have it. It's a free. <laughs> <laughs> Make a note. There's there's a lot of like one of the things I'm really fond of. There's a lot of banter. Like Dr. Nemesis plays a big role, and he's a character I'm very fond of. Like we get right back to the beginning of this interview where I was talking about uh, how cynicism plays very well, even in in uh, optimistic genres. Like uh, Dr. Nemesis is is sort of my curmudgeonly. Uh, mouthpiece. There's a lot of banter because he makes it very clear from the beginning that he does not like Dazzler's music. And so he wastes no opportunity to snipe at her. And, and she's just magnificent, rises above it all. And then like that, that takes some surprising turns. Let's just put that out there. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. Just, I... just the fact that you've teased Dazzler and Dr. Nemesis in a scene together, I'm like, <laughs> cannot wait, cannot wait. But Sai, I love what you were just saying because I think there are two things that unite people, music and sports. And I think if we're thinking about cultural, yes, I, I'm excited for that. And yeah. to, to piggyback off of what you were just saying about Nightcrawlers trying to make an inclusive culture, in issue one, the, young, the youngsters tell him, oh, Nightcrawler, you used to be so much fun. I'm curious, how is Nightcrawler different in this new era? I mean, he's just troubled, isn't he? He's, uh, this goes back to a question we were, we were talking about before. If, if, you, if, if we as fans, as readers, are encountering things in the Krakoan era that make us frown and make us arch an eyebrow, because that doesn't seem quite as eden-like as as it's being sold then you can guarantee that the people who are living there are doing the same you know and it's not just uh the the many questions that revolve around resurrection it's also questions to do with like the emerging cultural blooms that are popping up this, this like crucible is the obvious thing uh how do you feel if you're suddenly in a culture which is so inured to the fear of death that it's actively engaging with murder in in inverted commas question mark is it murder is it suicide to self-destroy if you know that you're going to come back better these are the big questions which as storytellers we're kind of excited by but my god if you lived in the middle of that you would not be sleeping at night for for thinking about these things and that is times a hundred if you're a Catholic priest <laughs> who has a penchant for dressing like a pirate. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> he's kind of the perfect person to just be like, what, what? Uh, the obvious example, and it's right there in issue one, just to really lay it on thick. The as in all things, the youngsters have have acclimatized themselves to a new paradigm of thought much quicker than the older characters. Yeah, so. The teenagers are talking about death and resurrection in the same syntax as 
we would all have spoken about losing our virginity as teenagers, you know, even to the extent that there's a little bit of peer pressure, like you just haven't lost your resurrection cherry yet, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that scene with Pixie and them telling her, like, you just have to think about what you want to eat and just get over with. And, and when she dies, I mean, DJ's reaction is awesome. I, I was like, whoa. I mean, it's such a shift when you think of how traditional youngsters at Xavier you know, who were more fearful and timid and hope you survived the experience. Now that's all gone. I mean, you re- you re- reinvented the wheel on that. Well, it's, I mean, I, I genuinely think if, if you live in a post-mortal society, that's that's where it's going to go. And, and, and it could only become more extreme from that. You end up with people killing themselves because it's fun. You end up with sport death. You end up with, with performative death. You end up with all sorts of stuff. And I make no comment about whether that's right or wrong because I'm not a mutant and I'm not going to resurrect if I die. But Nightcrawler, having spent all of his adult life in a human world and a human paradigm and being a proponent of a very clear set of religious codes can be forgiven for looking at this behavior and going, no, 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 that's wrong. And there's this wonderful moment where, in fact, it's DJ turns to him and says, why? And he has no answer because there isn't an answer in this new reality. It may not be wrong, but he senses something is not right. And he senses that something is desperately wrong in the shadows of hearts and minds of uh, mutant kind. And he sort of, he takes this worry to professor Xavier and he's kind of, is that just my Catholic paranoia? And the professor says, no, no, it isn't. I have detected something that is slithering in the shadows and I don't know what it is and I need you to help me find it. And, and that's kind of where our book uh, progresses from. Um, and it doesn't stop having new questions to ask at every turn of that screw. So, so yeah, that's not really a good answer to your question, but it, it's a, a good lead into the book. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that that it, it, it's great that you're you're diving into that sort of darker side of resurrection because when you really stop to think about it, things like you know Melody Guthrie fighting to the death with Apocalypse and Wind Dancer getting shot in the head on television in the Mojo verse, like those are really really dark things for such young characters to 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 be put through and like. No one's really asking too many questions about it. They just get resurrected and everybody's happy that they're whole again. And I'm personally very glad to hear that, that we're going to be, that you are going to be diving into that because that it, it, it hasn't necessarily felt like a miss. It just feels like something like, well, when are we going to get some answers there? You know, I, I, I really, I love that, but you know, we can't, we, we can't leave Legion out of the conversation for too long. You know, he was your last, main character x character that you're known for writing is is he maybe going to show up is nightcrawler versus legion something <laughs> you would be interested in i think in, in as much as this is going out after issue one drops i can i can probably say that yes he absolutely is going to show up okay, um, okay. I, I hesitate to lean into the verses of it all but um but yeah there's uh there's certainly a, a major role to be played by that character. Excellent. So another character, obviously we spoke about earlier is Marrow. 
and we know she lost the election. How do you feel about her not being there? And I mean, is she hanging around this new mutant culture? Uh, I have no plans for her in this book. Um, it's funny. I, I, knowing that I was doing this this podcast, I had to check. I asked. In fact, I'm going to double check right now. <laughs> we some... don't know who won the election. We we all we know right now it's between Polaris and Banshee. Like, have they announced it? Let me. Have see. they announced it? Let's see. Uh, I'm sure it's coming today. I don't know about that. But basically, uh, Jerry, oh. Jerry assures me that he's already tweeted about this, so I'm just going to go ahead. There was so much cheating in the... There's there more. Have they announced They announced it. It oh, was Lorna. It? It's it Lorna? Was Lorna? All right. It's Lorna. There Let's we go. Marvel did Yeah. Oh, it's wait. A Marvel. Hold on. Wait. Now, the last panel says Polaris... And, oh, no, no, that's just the name of the title. Sorry, I got myself excited. It's Polaris. Okay. Yeah, they just announced it. Like literally 20 minutes ago. Okay. Well, now we know. No, no more spoilers there. You don't have to tiptoe around it. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the thing that I don't know anybody's talking about much is that um, there was a lot of cheating. <laughs> Marvel detected some and, and corrected for some truly egregious attempts to, <laughs> to screw the vote. And oh, one, no. one of them was vis-a-vis uh, -vis Marrow. Somebody had created like a, a bot that just voted for Marrow so much that it was like, oh, there no. aren't this many readers in comicdom, so we kind of figured you out, buddy. Nice try, but no cigar. Um, so Marvel corrected for all that, but I was kind of, you know what, if somebody cares enough to go to all the trouble <laughs> of creating a bot and having Marrow win. I'm like, we know some Marrow stands. <laughs> I bet I bet we could find out who that was. I love well, the and I, I feel with hindsight, like I, I I wish I had done things a little bit differently when I used her in X-Force. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, there is a trope in fiction in which a male character can be buttoned down and full of simmering anger, full of like pent up rage. And generally speaking in fiction, when that anger finally bubbles over, it's used as a sort of superpower. It's like, well, I couldn't get my way by controlling myself. And so I'm going to start screaming and shouting and punching and whatever. And that way I'll get my way. And, and that's a perfectly acceptable character type in fiction generally when a female character is presented in the same way she's a fuck up yep. because women aren't allowed to be angry without also being alcoholics or or addicted to bad choices or whatever it is and for me that's what marrow is she's a character who is legitimately angry about what the world has done to yeah. her and she should be allowed to be angry about yeah um, and so I sort of, I feel like I leaned a little bit too far into the fuck up of it all. And there was a whole backstory about uh, pregnancy and, and, and things that mattered to me a great deal at the time and still do. But, but yeah, I, I feel like whoever does eventually write her it, it wants to be somebody who can address the, the righteous rage of it all because she kind of deserves that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'll say you, maybe you don't love some of the stuff you, you did with her. I, I enjoyed it. I thought that the pregnancy stuff was, was good. And, and I, I think something that you did, I can't remember 
who the last writer to have her before you was, but I know that there had been a lot of, of stuff around her coming out of her shell and, and finding a way to shift her bones to make herself look beautiful. And mm. I just thought that that was such a bullshit turn for the character. I and I, I appreciate you boiling her back down to, to, to basics. Like I, that, that's just, there's no need for her to be another pretty ex woman hanging out on at the mansion or Krakoa. So thank you for that. But Ivan, you know what I also love, Sai, that you've sat down and thought about your approach to her and how narratives have evolved and how representation of certain characters and marginalized voices needs to evolve and and how you looked at that. And I think that's just, again, I'm sorry to just be such a fanboy. We're obviously such fanboys of yours, but thank you for even giving that level of introspection because it takes a really courageous creator to look back and be like, you know what? This is what I should have done because I think we've all been there. And I think having difficult conversations about past mistakes is something that's gonna help us towards a better future and representation. No, I, I, it, I, it means a lot that you would say that, but I, I don't see it as something that I should be particularly rewarded for. It's, uh, I, I'm a, a straight white man. Uh, there is nothing that hasn't been given to me on a plate. The very least I can fucking do is question my behavior. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's, that's well, but not everybody does. So it's still, you know, I, we don't, I don't want to, yeah. you know, give you a crown or something for it, but you certainly, it, it, it's, it's nice. It wouldn't to fit. Know. <laughs> we'll give you a crown for way of X, <laughs> but no, to Fling's point, it's exactly that. Not many people have that level of introspection. And I think when you're with like-minded people, it's easy to, to forget that there's a whole world out there of people who make no apologies for being assholes. Right. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's just refreshing to see it in a medium like comics. Well, thank you. Yeah. So jumping back to the actual contents of, of Way of X for, for a moment, you actually, you're, you're seen with Professor X. Uh, he isn't wearing his helmet, which is something that we almost never see him without his helmet these days. Is, was that something deliberate? Does that mean something? Is it, am I reading too far? Sort of. I mean, no, there's no, there's no reading too far. Um, deliberate, in the first instance, deliberate because it's a very human moment that he's having. He's waking up from a nightmare and it's yeah. left him scared. And he's not a man who's accustomed to being scared. And for that, we need to be able to relate to his humanity. And apart from anything else, do we really believe that he sleeps in that uncomfortable fucking thing? So there's that. But um, more importantly, given what I've just told you about Legion being a, a core member of the cast, there are going to be scenes where he and his dad are staring at each other across the table and we don't want that helmet to be there for that. It'd be, it would be nice to be able to look your, your son in the eye, I agree. <laughs> So another moment in there um, that I, I was amused by was don't be such a Wanda. Uh, <laughs> explain that to us. What, is, what does that mean? That's a really good question. Um, and it touches on, it touches on some, some far broader stuff. Okay, so what we're playing with here is the idea that within the Krakoan community, the Scarlet Witch and what happened in the decimation event all those years ago has become such a, a sort of bogeyman yeah. 
that it's entered the vernacular. It's it's being used by kids in the way that you would talk about um, just as a pejorative. You would call somebody an idiot or you'd call yeah. somebody a, a naughty kid or whatever. We just started using, don't be so scarlet, don't be such a wonder. Now, I think that that makes perfect sense given the way that mutants are being told about wonder. And bear in mind, we've seen these <coughs> we've seen these sequences uh, with um, Exodus sitting, teaching yeah. young kids around campfires before Crucible talking about this stuff. And we revisit, we revisit those scenes in, um, in issue one with a, a little bit of a cool twist. But um, it is, of course, worth my saying, I shouldn't have to say this, but let's just be totally clear, that mutants are probably going down this path and vilifying this person does not mean that they're right to Right, and right. does not mean that I think they are right to. <laughs> so I say this because I got quite a lot of shit for even, <laughs> for even mentioning that sequence in one of the, the um, little teasers that I did for, um, for Way of X. Like we did this, this little nursery rhyme, which is a sort of um, uh, a vilifying song that we imagine mutant kids might have come up with, blaming Wanda for everything. Um, and of course... That's not the truth. We know as readers of the whole Marvel yeah. canon that there's a lot more nuance to it than that. But we as thinking beings are extremely good at banding together in tribes and reducing things down to goodies and baddies. Yep. And I can guarantee you that right or wrong, the vast majority of mutants would be seeing Wanda as a baddie. I mean, do you, is, there, is there a larger story with Wanda on the horizon? Okay. 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 Yeah, no seven. answer is, is an answer in this instance. <laughs> I, I can neither confirm nor deny, but okay. I, I probably wouldn't have given it so much thought if there weren't. Is maybe right. <laughs> well, we we love Wanda, especially after WandaVision. I mean, all eyes are on Wanda and She's Marvel. Here with us. She, oh, look there, she is, <laughs> Elizabeth Olsen. Marvel. Something Jordan said that I thought was so wonderful was Marvel is in the IP business and you know it's in the best interest <clears throat> at, at times to to lean into certain characters but speaking of that fire scene with exodus and them talking about wanda and the pretender another character was mentioned which obviously plays a role in in, in your book and we've already hinted at him patchwork or them excuse me we've hinted at them patchwork where did the idea for patchwork come from uh i i cannot answer that question without spoiling something that i cannot spoil um it's okay. so yeah just this sort of bounces back to something i mentioned earlier on um throughout issue one and two we we introduce this new krakowin bogeyman the kids call him the patchwork man he seems to be somebody who haunts people's nightmares this is literally Xavier himself sits bolt upright in the middle of the night, having had a vision of this mm -hmm. creepy thing with a, an owl mask instead of a face. Um, he thinks he knows who it is. Uh, I'm not going to tell you whether he's right or wrong, but we will, we will know for sure by the end of issue two. Okay. And one more question I have. 
after reading the issue and I pick apart everything. I'm so sorry. It's the correct but, approach. <laughs> <laughs> but so before Pixie is killed at gunpoint, they tell her, just think of like a food you really want and, and you'll resurrect and you'll be really happy. And then obviously when she resurrects, her first initial reaction is, I want a rainbow roll. She wants sushi. And we know that's a backup version of her before she died. And one of the things that I have found so interesting about The Crucible was when it came out, Hickman was talking about this notion of a soul. Is a soul something you're born with? Is it something that's created as you go through the world? Does it reattach itself to you when you come back? And I kind of saw that as an answer in your writing. I don't know if it was deliberate, but her waking up and saying, I want a sushi roll when it's an earlier backup from when she died. I'm just curious, were you purposely trying to put a commentary there or am I just being a clown right now and giving you... The, 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 the basis of that scene, for those who haven't read it yet, is that there's this conversation about how you should approach death and um, someone lower suggests to Pixie that you, you sort of approach it with a smile. You have to go out with a smile. And the way that she does it is that she just thinks about her favorite food. And Pixie has this little crazy aside about, well, that's no help because my favorite food changes every day. You know, who has a favorite food that they can just pick off the top of their head? So yesterday, all I really wanted was sushi. Today, all I wanted is some grilled cheese. And then she does. And the one who comes back like Nightcrawler's waiting for her with some grilled cheese. And he's like, here yeah. you go. This is your favorite food. And she's like, no, no, my favorite food is sushi. And so we're being told, like he is being told, that this version of her is not the version of her who died. It's the version of her from yesterday. Hmm. Now, that's troubling to him. That's troubling to anybody. Xavier's on hand to be like, well, you know, they're the people that they were when they were recorded, not how they were when they died, but they're the same people, aren't they? And that's an open-ended question. And, and I don't know that it, it definitely doesn't serve our stories to be answering that right now. Yeah. Agreed. But in terms of what we were talking about a moment ago, if you can put yourself in the shoes of a mutant living on Krakoa, these are absolutely the sorts of things you'll be worrying about. If I die, is the me who wakes up the same me? Has there been a continuity of consciousness? Or is it just some new, completely fabricated version of me with the illusion of all my memories in their head who thinks that they can remember everything that I remember? And these aren't new ideas, by the way. I mean, sci-fi writers have been talking about teleportation in this view since the 70s. You know, you step into the teleporter. How do you know it's just not a new version of you being put together? So there's, there's an awful lot of stored up science fiction psychology and philosophy around this which we can have a lot of fun looking into the complication to slightly draw the curtain aside is that we we know as marvel fans that it is a canonical and unavoidable fact that in the marvel universe there is such a thing as a soul and it can be separated from the body my instinct is that it is safest to lean into the anxieties and not present any answers yet yeah we're we're right there with you oh yeah Sai, you have been so generous with your time. We're in the home stretch of questions here. <laughs> and this is where, I mean, you've already been very uh, articulate with, with some teases, but we're going to just straight up ask you for some quick teases. Feel free to dodge if you need to, but it, anything for Nightcrawler. 
that you are that you can tease for us in this journey of him to create this really amicable culture? Is there is there anything you can tease about that? There's stuff. Ah, let's see. Um, Stacy X plays a major <laughs> role. If you're, yes. if you're a fan of that character, um, yes, we do. What an iconic cover with her holding the Wolverine suit yep. back in the day, and and Nightcrawler was there. So, what else? There's there's at least two panels that Bob has just blown out of the park with all of your favorite X Men throwing up at the same time. <laughs> uh, there's a comedy sequence involving ice cream. There's uh, an entire moon being casually pulled out of orbit. There's... I'm seizing right now. Yeah. There's the... F- uh, that's the way to end it, isn't it? Um, yeah. Go f- big or go home. <laughs> <laughs> Where we are going with this. Where we're heading is... Working title. The final revelation of Kurt Wagner. Okay. Oh, I love it. So aside from obviously the, the launch of, of your book, Way of X, the other big news item in the X universe right now is of course the Hellfire Gala, um, which your third issue ties into and, and the cover's great. You know, Kurt's looking dapper and hung like a hungover pirate um, on that cover. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Is there anything you can say about how your book fits into the crossover? Uh, uh, Hellfire Hangover is is my, my it's approach. Real. So that I'm not going to talk too much about the event because it's just so beautifully arranged and put together that I, I really don't want to spoil anything. But yeah. um, bearing in mind, my book was being set up at around the same time that the Hellfire Gala was being put together. It, it was not clever or even possible, really, that uh, Way of X be one of the core titles that has a role to play at the gala. Right. Um, So what we decided instead, which is kind of fun, is that we will be the book that happens the day after. So Way of X3 starts with this sort of condensed three-page flashback to Nightcrawler's experience of the gala. And and the, the version you will have gleaned from that cover is that he just gets fucking wasted and stumbles around and makes a fool of himself and says all the wrong things and then wakes up the morning after in a puddle of his own sick and and is full of regret. Um, And then the action switches immediately to the after after party, which is still raging with all the youngsters in a place that I can't talk about. Um, And that becomes like the the meat of the episode is is what happens next, what happens after it. And in fact, that is the joy of X episode. So it's it's all about people who are not only hungover, but who are hungover and horny at the same time. Oh my God, (laughs) yes. It's it's a lot of fun. I can't wait. I I, I can't wait to read it. I've got to say that- (laughs) We're so happy you're on the books. Right? Just the solicit for Way of X number three. I mean, it mentions a sexy saxophone solo and my brain just like automatically starts playing Careless Whisper. And I mean, that's never a bad thing. So I'm definitely like, it's it's one of the more intriguing solicits, I'll say. So I, I can't wait to check that one out. Jumping back to, I, I know that we're, this is the, the tease for the future section, but I can't help myself. I have to jump back to, to X-Men Legacy one last time. Um, <coughs> Blindfold was, was obviously a, a big part of that run. She was basically your second lead. And now we know that 
Krakoa has a very strict no precogs rule. Uh, Moira is is all about that. She's cracking that whip. I I feel like there is a fascinating story about Blindfold's resurrection waiting to be told. Is is that something you have any interest in? I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Just, yeah, I, th- that's one of those things I can't talk much about. Um, yeah. Which- it should not be seen as, as in this case, should not be seen as uh, as confirmation that it's that it's on the cards. There are definitely there are absolutely things in the works which which might lead into that um, or might not. Um, what I can say with with great certainty is that when we first encounter David Haller Legion. He does talk about this. He he talks like one of the things that I was very keen about was if you're living on Krakoa, there's a good chance that one of your friends is a precog. And you're like, well, why haven't why haven't they been resurrected? And and there's only so many times you can be told it's a really long queue, sorry, before you start to smell a rat. Yeah. yeah. And he is exceedingly good at smelling rats. So that is that is uh, something he he brings up very quickly. I, I just gotta say, I wouldn't mind him and Mystique teaming up to go up, go for uh, Destiny, Destiny Blindfold. I think yes. that would be a fun story. Mm. So uh, we're assuming you know Hickman's grand plan. We were not gonna ask you at all, you know, particulars, but how excited do you think fans will be to see a much larger story of Hickman coming to fruition? Do you think we're just gonna go as crazy as we did with Hoxpox? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yes, there is no doubt that... Look, no plan survives contact with the enemy, right? So so we... You remember what we were talking about at the top of this, about Grant Morrison and the, yeah, the yeah. way that you have to sort of see it as a journey instead of a destination? Um, John's genius has been creating this totally pluripotent, fertile soil that all of us can tell stories in and I'm in the privileged position of knowing several of the massive beats that will come down the pipe. Now it would be foolhardy for any of us to imagine that any of those beats are what we would call an ending because we, we all know X-Men ain't going to end. Right? So what's going to happen is that we're working towards gigantic beats, which will change things forever. And then we'll keep our eyes fixed on that. And then there'll be another gigantic beat, which will change things forever and on and on. Um, And at some point the paradigm will shift and uh, that will be a whole new cycle of amazing stories. So I can say with great certainty that the things I know that are coming are jaw dropping. The, The notion that any of them can be seen as the execution of the plan would would be reductive. It would assume that there is some sort of discrete plan and there isn't. There's discrete chunks of awesome plan which get vaguer and vaguer the further away we go. Okay, that sounds a great way to end <laughs> our talk here. Really <laughs> Not an end, but... <laughs> but a tease. Um, but a tease. How, yeah. how about that? Uh, Sai, where can fans connect with you uh i'm most often on twitter so at size 
is where you will find me on Twitter. Um, and that'll lead you to websites and blogs and all the rest of it. But um, I'm afraid that I am wasting most of my time on Twitter these days. <laughs> okay, as, as are, are all of us. Flink, where can the folks at home find you? I am on Instagram at, at Flinkman. Um, yeah, that, that's really it these days. I'm, I, I'm on Twitter, but you know, my, my bio on Twitter says I don't tweet. So I, you can follow me there, but it won't, it won't be very exciting. I'm so jealous of you being able to get away from that awful, awful side. I, the thing is, is I, the, the, I never really started. Like I have it, but I have it literally because armor was on it in Warren Ellis's Astonishing X-Men. And I was like, what is, what is this? So I opened an account and I quickly found out it's not, it's not the happiest place on earth. <laughs> no, it's so vitriolic. It's like the new message boards. Like you can't say anything on Twitter without like mobs coming after you. And you're like, and that's the thing. Like I had just gotten past my like teenage message board kick when yeah. Twitter came out. And I was like, I don't need to transfer this toxicness over. Like, I'm, I'm good. I have a, I have like a spurious first law of the internet. And it's so true of Twitter that it hurts. And it's this factions speak louder than herds. And it, <laughs> it's so true because the smaller a group is, the louder they shout. Yep. Yeah, no, it's the loudest people on 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 Twitter, and they they are a minority, but they are the most vocal. And you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it at all. Thank you for joining us this morning, Power of X Men. This is like going to be such a great episode because of both of you. Thank you guys so much. Great pleasure. Yes, thanks I, for having us. I am the Uncanny Dayspring signing off.